Hello, and welcome to Developer's Journey, the podcast shining a light on developers' lives from all over the world. My name is Tim Bourguignon, and today I receive Jeremy Lickness. Jeremy is a cloud developer advocate for Azure at Microsoft. Jeremy has spent two decades building enterprise software with a focus on line-of-business web application. He's also the author of several highly acclaimed technical books, including Designing Silverlight Business Applications and Programming the Windows Runtime by Example. He has given hundreds of technical presentations during his career um, as a professional developer. And in his free time, Jeremy likes to run, to hike, and to maintain a 100% plant-based diet. Oh, God, we're not going to go uh, along together. Jeremy, welcome <laughs> to Dev Journey. Thank you. That's quite quite the welcome. I, I'm sure we can be compatible, even if I only eat plants. <laughs> yeah, I, I tend to uh, go on the uh, low carb, high fat uh, diet, which is not completely easy to do with the only plants. But but I, I am sure we will manage to get along. Sounds like a plan. Let's start by hearing your story before we talk about plant based diets. Tell us how these uh, those two decades as a software developer started, and maybe how you ended up uh, working for Microsoft. Okay, that is quite quite the journey, but uh, it really started even more than than two decades ago. My my journey started uh, when I was very young. Initially, I wanted to be an astronaut, and I was fascinated with space. So anything I could get my hands on that was pictures of planets, I tracked the Voyager and Pioneer flybys as those satellites probed the the unknown depths of space. But I had a really unique incident happen. And when I was seven years old, I went to a, a beach field trip. And at that time, <clears throat> excuse me, sunscreen technology was not where it's at today. It was like a thick paste that I just hated. So I refused to put my sunscreen on. I got incredibly burned and ended up being burned so bad I had to stay home from school. And there was not much to do but watch TV and eat. So I did plenty of that, but I got bored and we had a personal computer called a TI-99-4A. This was a computer that had, I think, 32 kilobytes of memory, ran on probably a one megahertz processor, and it was standing there staring at me, and we had no games or anything to, to do with it. So I turned it on. Well, what do I do now? I found a manual. <clears throat> it told me if I typed these things into the keyboard that this other thing would happen. So I tried it out. And next thing I knew, I had a little pixelated character dancing across the screen. And from that point in time, I completely switched my career goals, decided that I was going to be a developer. So that became my main focus, my main pursuit. I was going to go to school. I was going to do great. I was going to get a degree. I was going to land a job. And then I found out that life is more complicated than that. I had a lot of personal issues arise in my life around the time that I started for college. And to keep a short story boring, I dropped out of college. And based on what I was told, everyone said, you can't be a developer without a degree. So I just listened to them and got a job working as a busboy. I worked as a at a bookstore. I worked at a clothing shop. I worked at a fast food restaurant. I even spent one year working in a pool hall, getting paid just a, a fixed flat rate to spend all day in the pool hall. Decided I was going to be a, a pool hustler 
and be great at pool and enjoyed that. And then got a job at a insurance company taking insurance claims in Spanish because I learned Spanish in high school. So I checked a box that I spoke Spanish and they threw me into an interview and it turns out I got this job. And uh, the people in the job were very competitive with each other. How many claims did we close out? And it was very tough to close out a claim if the software crashed. And I noticed that the IT department, when they would come down, our software would crash, we'd file a ticket, they'd come down, and they'd basically just restart the application most of the time. So I said, well, I can do that. So I started restarting the application myself. IT noticed that in their audit logs, came and had a conversation with me. And next thing you know, I'm shifting over into the IT department. They figured out that that was my true passion, that I had a knack for it. So I got a job as a night shift operator, basically managing these queues of documents that went to these huge printers. So the first thing I did was wrote some software to optimize the way the documents were sent to the printers. So I cut down the time it took to switch out print cartridges from, I think it was maybe six or seven hours down to probably two or three hours. Use the rest of the time to study all the books I could get my hands on. I may have walked around and maybe borrowed some books from other desks, but I was determined to teach myself the programming language, which at the time was a mainframe, and uh, basically started showing how I could develop code, moved in, and that was the, the start of my programming career. A lot happened in the middle. <laughs> a lot can happen in 20 years, so we can definitely throw a uh, closer look at some of those phases in my journey, but the uh, the Microsoft phase was a, a very interesting phase for me because it wasn't even a job that I was actively looking for. I was at a consulting firm leading the application development practice. And part of that was helping establish the brand, connecting with developers, understanding what was out there in the market. So I was already doing things like writing blog posts, going to conferences, and uh, connecting with, with developers on behalf of that company. And I saw that a new group was forming at Microsoft called Developer Advocacy. And it was a group that was uh, specifically focused on empowering developers to have a better experience for Azure, which is our cloud offering. And I was watching this and I was thinking, good for, for those people, looks exciting. And out of the blue, no no prompting from my side, just somehow a recruiter for a completely different position at Microsoft reached out to me. So I'm already thinking, wow, there's this interesting thing going on at, at Microsoft. The recruiter reaches out to me and I wasn't actively looking, but I said, hey, let me, you know, see if how far I can go. I actually went through an interview process and was not selected for that position for reasons that are just uh, some areas of focus didn't align. So I said, okay, well, that was a good go. At least I tried. But then another recruiter reached out and said, we have this other position that we'd like to talk to you about. So I started that process. And partway through the process, the um, process came to a halt because the budgeting changed. We crossed the fiscal year and they decided to, to make a shift. So I was like, okay, well, that was probably my last opportunity. Nope. A third time, someone reached out and said, what do you think about this position? And it was the exact position that I had seen people talking about, this new position, this exciting role of cloud developer advocacy. And I said, absolutely. So I jumped in. At, at the time, it was interesting because I was going on an overseas trip to Italy 
with my wife to celebrate our 20 year anniversary. And I had a very limited time frame to come back. They wanted me to interview for two days and I didn't have two days to ask for, but I was taking an extra day after I got back from Italy to adjust to the time zone. So I asked them, can, can we do this process in a day? And they agreed. So I flew back from Rome to Atlanta, helped my wife get on the bus with our luggage and everything, took my luggage, went back through security, flew across the country to Seattle, got into my hotel probably about one in the morning, was back up at five to get ready to go into a full day interview loop. And um, fortunately, the set of interviews went well. And here I am today, cloud developer advocate at Microsoft. <laughs> wow, that's quite a journey. It, it is, and I even le- left out several steps along the way. But allow me to backtrack a bit. You said something very interesting. You said that when you were in college, or, or when you dropped out after dropping out, you were convinced by someone that development couldn't be a future career for yourself. When when did you realize that that this was not the case. I mean, when did you realize that you have the the, the knick for it that that you, you that you actually can be good at it? So I, I had a very close minded view of how things worked, and I I knew I was a capable developer. I could see the things that I created. Um, you know, for a high school assignment in C I wrote a Huffman encoding compression algorithm that that worked. It wasn't as fast as something commercially available, but I could take text, I could compress it, I could decompress it. So I knew I w- had aptitude and I had ability. But I just assumed based on a culture that I think is cultivated in the United States. And it's a, probably one of the greatest marketing campaigns ever is this campaign to convince people that they must go to college to be successful. And I'm not against college. There are great things that happen in college, but I was so bombarded with this that I just didn't have it in my mindset that there was a possibility that a company would consider hiring me without a degree. So I just assumed I'd have to slog along, figure out other type of work that I didn't enjoy to do until I could afford to go back to night school or get my degree or, or what have you. So it was almost accidentally I stumbled into this in having that insurance job because I was fixing software, so to speak, on my own, just because I wanted to have good numbers. <laughs> I wanted to be productive and I didn't want to wait for that IT ticket to be satisfied. So I took things into my own hands and they recognized that and said, you know what, you know what you're doing, but we want you to do it in a formalized, supervised way. So if you're interested, you can transfer into our team. And that's when I realized, okay, even though I don't have a degree, they're willing to take a bet on me based on my abilities. And after that, it built confidence in what I was doing. And I stopped looking at not having a degree as a handicap and instead focused on my abilities and experiences moving forward. And that propelled me into the different stages of my career from being a developer to being a manager to directing an IT department to having my own business to doing what I do now in a advocacy role at Microsoft. How did you did you um, learn during this phase? You said you were you were borrowing books right and left. Is this the way um, the best way for you to learn th- things? It's just um, 
enclose yourself in your bubble and 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 try to learn with books or did you find patterns in there so initially i was pretty isolated i was uh you know working odd jobs living in a, a really small uh we call it a garage apartment it's meant to be a room off a garage to store stuff and converted it to my apartment so i just had my computer we had the internet back then, but it was um, not as easy to get around. So it was physical print books, but I definitely learned by doing. I can read, I can watch videos, I can go to a conference, I can take a class. But until I actually build something, I feel like I haven't really mastered it and can't speak to it. So early in my career, I would do things just to solve problems. It seemed very logical to me when I had that job as a night shift print operator we had these massive printers. I mean, they were the size bigger than refrigerators and they would only print black and one other ink color. And some of the forms had green on them. Some of them had red on them and they would come in this haphazard fashion. And we were constantly swapping green and red and green and red. And I said, surely there's a way to look at the document in the queue, figure out what ink it needs and sort it so that all the green ink comes together and all the red ink comes together. And then we only swap it twice instead of multiple times. And it was just a question of, okay, I know what I want to do. Now I need to go look at a book that tells me how this language works so I can figure out what the steps are to make it happen. So I'd conceptualize the solution and I did that. And I found throughout my career, that's how I learn. I, I pick up a new technology. I think of a problem that I'm looking to solve. And then I attempt to solve it with that technology. And in the past, it would be books that I would turn to, to be sort of my guide uh, or go online to forums. Now I do a lot more of watching videos and I learn a lot through, through conferences. Conferences to me are fantastic, not only because there's some amazing speakers who can share new technology and implementations and, and things from the field, but it also gives you an idea of what people are actually working on. We can have a technology that seems cool, uh, but if it's breaking down in the real world, if it's not actually solving problems or maybe it's just not getting adoption, it's not probably the right tool to, to focus your time and attention on. And one way to look at that is to work with with companies, right, that are developing software, but a lot of the developers from those companies or even the, the users go to conferences and that's a great way to gauge the pulse of what is trending, what's being used, what's working, what's not, and where can we fill those gaps. And um, how did you fall into this conference world? The conference world was was interesting for me. I was working at a startup that I started as the third employee. And my first day on the job, I flew in. I was living in Florida at the time. The job was in Atlanta. I flew in. The CEO picked me up on the way back to the office, which was a set of lofts that used to be a hotel and before that was a fire station. But he stopped by Ikea and we went in and he bought a set of parts to assemble a desk. He drove me to the loft, handed me a set of keys said, basically, we're on the second floor. We're in this door. Find a spot that you like. Assemble your desk. Welcome <laughs> to your new company. So that's how I, I started out. And um, fast forward to five years later. So this was a, a company 
that we were very heads down, uh, very startup mode. It was a successful company. It was later sold to VMware for $1.5 billion. So it, it did rather well. But uh, five years into this, I was still working crazy startup hours. I was heads down. I was writing a blog, but I didn't really have time. I was the critical link. And it wasn't a technology or a knowledge issue. It was really a trust issue. I had built a lot of trust, and it was difficult to transfer that trust to other people so that I could have backups and leave and and do things. So it meant that uh, conferences weren't really an option, but I was writing blogs and doing some interesting things and decided that I really needed a lifestyle change. I knew I could be massively successful if I stayed with that company, but the hours I was working and the level of stress and frustration and ownership was spilling over into my personal life. And it was not a great situation with my wife and, and daughter. I didn't see them that often. When I did, I wasn't in the best of moods. So we, we all agreed that I needed to make a change. So a company came and they were actually, I think, initially going to pitch their services for me to hire them where I was at. But when they approached me, I looked at their company and it was a, a company of a smaller company. The consultants mostly worked remotely out of the house They had a very sane workload balance and they had a compensation plan that if you happen to work extra hours, you were rewarded for that extra work proportionately. And it just seemed like a great lifestyle change, but it was a very visible company. And a lot of the uh, members of that company had been uh, in roles going to conferences. So I'm going to rewind a little bit. I know this is a a little bit of a rambling way to get there. But at one point in time, I had started my own fitness business. I lost a lot of weight, realized that losing weight isn't really, the, the key to it isn't the diet or the exercise. There's a lot of different diets that work. There's a lot of different exercises that work. The key is mindset. So I wanted to start a company that focused on mindset. And as part of that, what I had to do to make money was first get comfortable selling myself, having confidence that I could help people with the mindset and then be able to sell and deliver that. But the second thing is to leverage and scale the business because this was a company of one. I was the only employee. My wife helped out with administrative tasks. I decided to do things like provide seminars that I could record the seminar. I could generate some income from the seminar, then I could turn that into a DVD set, sell a DVD set online, and I could scale the business and produce leverage because those DVDs will sell without me ever having to record another seminar again. So that got me the experience and confidence in speaking, but I hadn't married it with technology. So when I went to this consulting company, they strongly encourage, you know, get out, give back to the community, go out, take what you learn because you've worked on these amazing projects and topics and share it by getting out to a conference and giving a presentation. So I started doing that and fell into a love-hate relationship. The hate part was simply because every time I would speak, I would be nauseous for days before I talked I couldn't focus on anything else. I was so nervous the talk would go wrong, but then I'd get up and deliver the talk and all it would take is one person, just one person coming up after the talk saying, wow, that really 
demonstrated this in a way I hadn't seen before. That solved my problem or that inspired me to do this. And that was enough to just feel phenomenal about that accomplishment and decide, you know what, I'm going to do this again. And one talk turned to two, to three, to four. And uh, eventually it became part of the cadence. It was uh, regularly looking for user groups that I could go out to and uh, plug in with the community, either as an attendee to receive information or to to deliver it. So that's how I got kind of shifted into this this role of of going out and speaking at conferences. Oh, cool. That's a nice uh, a nice segue into it. That's cool. Um, could, could you please define uh, what what you do as a as a developer advocate? Sure. Uh, you know, the very short and simple answer is three key things, and I call them the three C's. One C is community. And that's the community of developers. And I go out wherever developers are. That may be physically at a conference, at a user group. It may be internally here at Microsoft. It could be online through Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, what have you. It may be in an open source project. But it's getting out where developers are to remove roadblocks. So it's about empowering developers. So that's the first C. The second C is content. As part of that, We create and curate content. So I may produce some of my content on my own, whether it's a blog post or an article or a video. But I also am very passionate about finding good content that connects the dots and sharing that so that developers can have an avenue to solve the problems they're facing. The third part of it, the last C, is a connection with engineering. I have relationships close close relationships with engineers here who are working on Azure, who are working on .NET, who are working on SignalR, who are working on different aspects of the product. And I, it's a two-way communication flow. If someone, a developer, is having challenges in the field, part of what I do is take those challenges back and explain, here's the problem, here's why it's an important problem, and here's why we need to solve it so that we can produce change and help the engineering teams improve the products to solve those problems. But it's also about the engineering teams are working very hard to add new features and capabilities. And when those features and capabilities become available, I get out there and take those to the field so people are aware of them, know how to use them, and can integrate them. But that that's really the, the cycle. It's first helping developers, and then second, I mean, at the end of the day, it's still a job. I'm paid by Microsoft. It's promoting Azure as a platform. But it's not about competing in the sense of this is better. It's more of a focus of here's how you can solve this problem with the platform that I that I know, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. It does. You spoke a bit, or we spoke already about the, the community and, and public speaking side of it. How um, did your, your previous jobs prepare you for what you do today, uh, maybe beside the public speaking? Oh, ev every aspect of it. Um, when I was at the insurance company very early in my career, we were pioneering the, the use of, of SQL. So SQL as a language had just been introduced to the AS400, which was the mid-range I worked on. And so I had to learn the new syntax, learn how to apply it, learn how to solve business problems. Then I moved on to 
a, a supply chain logistics company, and we were figuring out new things that hadn't been figured out before. Uh, we were connecting with new technology. You know, it was new at the time to have conveyor belts that could scan items and then uh, move them onto different tracks based on response. And we were building controllers and interfaces to those. So I had to learn how to take a, a component that doesn't necessarily have a very easy manual that goes with it and learn how to make things happen, learn how to experiment, how to have successes and failures, create a package of software that could scale in the enterprise and be sold as a product. Um, I would say probably the biggest learning experience for me, though, was the company I mentioned where I started out as a third employee. Because we went from, at the time we started out, as a hotspot management company. So we would provide Wi-Fi. Now, for people who have Wi-Fi today, it's everywhere and it's easy. At the time, and this was 10 years ago, there were only a few providers. And if you were a hotel and you wanted to have Wi-Fi, you could sign up to one of the major telco providers and have their paid Wi-Fi. But companies wanted to have a branded experience. They wanted it to be company Acme's Wi-Fi, if you will. So what we specialized in was designing custom software that would provide a unique experience. Part of that, though, as a small company managing that infrastructure meant building software that would monitor it. If you think about it, if I'm in Atlanta and I have... 50 access points in a massive hotel in San Francisco. Last thing I want to have to do is every time something goes wrong, get in a plane and fly out there and be physically there. So if I can write software, if my software can manage and monitor those access points remotely, if it can do things like take snapshots of their configuration so that when that access point does go down, I can be alerted, I can flash the correct configuration in my office and drop ship a replacement this is a way that, that we can scale. And we scaled very successfully, and that software morphed into mobile device management software. It was right around the time the uh, iPhone came out and people started looking at, well, how do I manage these new devices that are getting on my networks? And so we had to deal with new technology. We had to deal with rapidly changing technology. We had to deal with massive concurrent scale. We had systems that were literally receiving millions of updates per second transactionally had to process that information, alert and route. So I think if you look at all of the common programming challenges people face, regardless of what industry they're in, we faced a lot of those challenges. I mean, even to the point where as a developer, I had to learn about BG, I think it's called BGP peering, actual IP address peering. So you have two physically different data centers that can have the same virtual IP address. So if a data center goes down, it can fail over. And I think all of those steps gave me unique insight into troubleshooting, unique insight into programming at scale, and even unique insight into how to manage teams and create productive teams. I was in charge of all the hiring and, and team building at that, that company. And there's an art to having a productive and, and collaborative team. And this was before Agile had been formalized and was so ubiquitous. So there were a lot of learnings along the way, but I, I feel like every single step in the 20 plus years of challenges that I faced 
really prepared me for where I'm at. And there's no single technology that I mastered, but I mastered the art of development. Regardless of which language, which platform, I learned how to take on a new platform, take on a new language, take on a new technology, and apply it in a way that solves the business problem. Always trying to reduce the overhead, the friction, the ceremony, the ritual, and increase the surface area of innovation, right? So let's get out of the business of configuring network routers. Let's get out of the business of configuring servers. Let's focus on what's unique for our business and solve that problem and do it at scale. Wow. Cool. <laughs> I'm, I'm a bit baffled. That's a lot, of, <laughs> that's a lot of, uh, of tinkering and tweaking and finding your way into um, into whatever you need to do. That's, that's really cool. Um. Have you had the, uh, you spoke a bit about team, team management or team leading. Um, have you had the chance to work with, uh, with very young developers? Absolutely. Um, I've worked with developers uh, across the, the levels of experience, but we had a very strong focus. We were located near Georgia Tech in Atlanta. So we worked very closely with them and worked with in both interns and recent graduates to, onboard junior developers. And I'll always tell people from a perspective of having been on the hiring side of interviews probably hundreds of times that hiring an expert in the field uh, is easier than people think because it's very easy to ask a difficult question and get a response or to see someone's portfolio and curriculum. When you're hiring someone who's more junior, it it's, takes a lot more empathy patience and consideration because what you're really looking for is not can you solve this textbook problem or do you have this experience because they're new to the field but what is the aptitude and the the passion right if they're not passionate about learning and growing it's going to be very difficult to to onboard and, and train but there's also an aptitude for for learning and ability to synthesize new information and learn and that's very hard to to uh, test for in the interview process, but it's very rewarding. And, you know, early on in my career, I got to a point where it wasn't about, you know, what's the next title that I can get or the next level of salary or anything else. I stepped back and said, what do I really want to get out of my career? And the answer came back, I want to empower developers to be their best. That's why I go to conferences. That's why I write blog posts. That's why uh, I like managing teams. It's about enabling and empowering. I love the solving problems too, but that put it in a perspective. There's nothing more uh, powerful or impactful than being able to create a position and hire a junior person to that role so that they have that opportunity to start that process and learn and grow and, and uh, you know, become a, a developer like they've, they've dreamed of being. Mm-hmm. Um, have you found uh, some kind of um, recipe that, that kind of works for you, a very subjective one, uh, obviously, that works for you when you're searching for someone to, uh, to detect uh, potential? Uh, you know, I wish I could say I was a, a master of that, but, but I haven't really. I mean, a, a lot of it is, is uh, just cre creating a dialogue and hoping that that junior developer is being genuine and honest. I think sometimes uh, recruiters can coach developers to create this facade and that it's not okay to not know things. And for me personally, I've always appreciated when I ask a question, if the answer is, I don't know that, 
but if you allow me a minute to try to think through, I can try to reason out an answer. That's much better than, yes, I know it, and rattling off something random because you don't want to say you don't know something in, in the interview. So I don't have a formula. I've uh, certainly possibly hired people who either weren't, didn't have their heart into it or may have required more coaching. But at the end of the day, there's always the, the, if if someone could hire perfectly, I think there would be a book that would, you know, be a million dollar selling copy book on, you know, here's the magic way to always hire well. But I've I've always really focused on just being genuine. And if there's there's chemistry, if it feels like there can be a genuine collaboration as part of that interview process and there's a, a desire and if uh if all the elements come into place, then it's about us taking on the responsibility of taking that risk, bringing that person on, and then really providing the tools that, that they need to be successful. And what would those uh, be, for instance? Um, you know, basically being able to provide the, the time right to to mentor or connecting them with a mentor providing resources providing support providing encouragement um you know providing a team environment that's very open and welcoming um that celebrates uh, the different types of ideas and doesn't penalize people for trying to think outside of the box i mean i think all of these elements are support tools that can help someone plug in feel comfortable confident realize It's okay if they make mistakes, if those mistakes are out of ignorance and not out of, you know, uh, desire to make something go wrong, right? And um, the sooner you can build that that trust and that that team energy by just being genuine, open, and supportive, I think uh, the teams themselves just take on a life of their own and, and become very successful. <laughs> cool. Uh, have you had the chance to um to accompany someone uh, on their public speaking journey um and and step into your your footsteps uh, as a as it may be and and maybe experience this uh, being sick in their stomach as well and and realize that they they're still alive after the talk and and everything went well in this current role it's uh, exciting because We have a range of experiences, backgrounds, communities. Uh, some people have, have joined this role who have been more content producers, but wanted to step into speaking and vice versa. So I, I you know, I wouldn't take responsibility for, for anyone. I'm here to, to enable and empower. I don't create that, that success, but it has been. Uh, very eye opening for me to be in a role where we have so many people who are doing this type of work to see the different stages of, of experience and confidence and, and how people deal with the nervousness and the stress and how people grow. Um, you know, it's definitely something for me. Um, you all still get nervous before certain talks. And I also still recognize that I may think I have a great talk and it may not be. So I've learned this skill that was very tough uh, in the beginning is to ask feedback. I used to be so scared of, oh my gosh, someone's going to look at my talk. They're not going to like this or whatever, but being more open early on and being a student myself and saying, even though I've done this for eight years, I don't know it all. Can you take a look at this? I've learned so many ways to, to improve that. And then I can turn back around and that's top of mind. So when someone more junior comes and, and talks to me. So I've definitely worked with people and, and helped support and give feedback and, 
and uh, done that. But they've really all themselves supplied the the courage and the the fortitude and the effort and the focus to to move forward and be successful on their own. Fantastic. Um, one more question, and I guess uh, we'll be reaching the end of the time book soon. So um, you probably don't want to change. Uh, anything or much in your in your past it seems uh it it was a very logical build up um to the place you are at uh, right now but if you could um give yourself uh, your 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 former self an advice um what what would that be yeah i have mixed feelings about that because i i think the delays i i think not jumping right into a computer career gave me exposure to other types of work. And, and uh, quite frankly, there were times when I was in between jobs and had no money whatsoever. And I, I sort of needed that as a humbling experience. I was this kind of cocky person who I'm such a good developer. I'm going to get, you know, great grades in school, get a great job and that's it. And it turns out life does, doesn't work that way. So I'm thankful for that. But if I were able to go back Uh, my advice would be stop being afraid. I was so afraid to do new things. Um, just moving out of Florida to Atlanta for the first time was the most terrifying thing I ever did. And somehow I summoned up the courage to do it. And it was very crucial in my career. But I would say that I probably missed a lot of opportunities for fear of taking risks or trying out something new. And it doesn't mean going blindly into things, but I would just say stop being afraid. Like, it's okay. You can try this out. If it doesn't work out, you can try something different. But don't miss out on something because you never tried it. You know, at the end of the day, I want to be the person who said, I tried it and it was good or bad rather than I wish I had. And that's what I would say. Don't, don't, have, don't join the not much club. Don't be that person that if someone sees you five years later and asks what's new, you say not much because you didn't take on risk and learn new things and, and explore. That would be my advice to my old self. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Nice advice. Um, yeah, I guess we've reached the end of the time, books. we should, we should wrap up. Um, what's, what's on your plate in the next uh, weeks or months? Um, you're probably at, at an, a bunch of conferences. Uh, where can people see you in person and maybe in, uh, um, talk to you in person? So the, the best place to go, my blog is blog.jeremylickness.com. And in addition to articles I write, I also have a tab for upcoming events of where I'm going. I'm part of a tour that Microsoft is hosting called Microsoft Ignite, the tour. And I have two more stops for that. I'm going to Amsterdam late in March, and then I'm going to Mumbai in the end of May. So I'm excited about that. I'll be delivering talks focused on building resilient cloud applications and also serverless. So that's uh, exciting for that. I'll be going to Atlanta in April, or not Atlanta, to Knoxville for CodeStock. I'm doing a keynote there and presenting a session. Incredibly excited CodeStock. Uh, was the very first major conference I spoke at. So to be able to come back uh, almost 10 years later as a keynote speaker is uh, incredibly exciting. I'll be going to Atlanta for a brand new conference called .NET South that we're, uh, I'm helping spin up to, to cater to the .NET developers in the Atlanta area. That'll be in May. And then in June, I'll be back in Atlanta for a diversity conference called Refactor 
Tech, which is I'm just ecstatic that they've invited me to a conference that really celebrates marginalized uh, developers and, and technology professionals. So I'll be doing that and then uh, still waiting to hear back from conferences for the second half of the year. But I'll post those to my blog as they come in. I'm also doing a video series that I'm slowly posting to Twitter and will result in an article teaching TypeScript. Been working on that. That's been been ongoing. And I'm recording some Channel 9 videos. Um, I'm close to finishing out a series uh, with uh, a co-host, Abel Wang, called uh, DevOps for .NET Developers that I'm excited about. Cool. Qu- quite a lot on your plate indeed. <laughs> I'm not going to get bored in the next few <laughs> weeks or months, that's for sure. doesn't look like it. Uh, would, would Twitter be, uh, be the right way to uh, contact you in the meantime? Absolutely. It's just at Jeremy Lickness on, on Twitter, and I have open direct messages. That means even if I haven't followed someone, they can still send me a message, and I do respond to all messages. Cool. Cool. Um, anything we missed um, we should have been talking about and we, we didn't? Um, I think anything we could have talked about would have led to another half hour of discussion. <laughs> so I think we covered some some good ground. I, I, I could tell, tell lots of, of stories have been uh, seen amazing things in my career. Who knew that a career in development could be so exciting and take you uh, literally around the world? Uh, but it's uh, something that I'm both amazed by, but feel incredibly blessed that I had that passion early on and was able to tap into it. It it never ceases to uh, to amaze me to hear all these stories. It's it's absolutely fantastic, and that's why I'm doing this. It's it's uh, a variety and a diversity of of um, of journeys and adventures that's always um, different yet always the same, and it's fantastic. I, I love it. Thank thank you very much for sharing your story tonight. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited about what you're doing as well. And this has been another episode of Developer's Journey. And we'll see each other in two weeks. Bye-bye. Dear listener, if you haven't subscribed yet, you can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, Spotify, and much more. Head over to www.devjourney.info to read the show notes, find all the links mentioned during the episode, and of course, links to the podcast on all those platforms. Don't miss the next Developer's Journey story by subscribing to the podcast with the app of your choice right now. And if you like what we do, please rate the podcast, write a comment on those platforms, and promote the podcast on social media. This really helps fellow developers discover the podcast and those fantastic journeys. Thank you.